Last week we talked about the call of Abraham. We talked about the fact that he was 75 years old when God called him from Ur of Chaldees. And when he did, he called Abraham to place his hand in the Lord God's hand and to begin a lifelong walk with him. In order to do that, Abraham had to detach himself. He had to detach himself from his home, from family, and from his way of life. Today we're going to continue with Abraham. And would you stand out of respect for the reading of God's word? Genesis chapter 15, beginning at verse 1. Hear the word of God. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign God, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, and so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed God, and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I don't know about you, but there is, um, I have noticed over the years that some of these passages in Scripture and some of these stories in Scripture, I have grown so familiar with them that I begin to take them for granted. And there are some things within Scripture that are just covered so quickly that I have a tendency to sort of skip over them and think that it was a much simpler thing than what it really was. I think that uh, much of the life of Abraham is this way. We said last week that he was 75 years old when God called him to leave Ur of Chaldees, the place that he had known all of his life. God called him to detach himself from the things that were most precious to him, the things from which he drew his identity, his security, and his personal fulfillment. And Abraham did. In the passage we just read, it said, Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. I think we have a tendency too often to think that belief that faith, that it's just something that, that is just, it's either there or it's not. You either have it or you don't. And we don't really stop sometimes to think about what that faith is. And I wonder if you have stopped to think about that. What does it mean, what did it mean for Abraham to believe? You see, faith, for it to be anything, has to change our action. It has to affect our behavior. If there is faith without action, if there is faith without a transformation, if there is faith without just an audacious willingness to believe God no matter what, it really is not a faith. Now I try to think about the way that this impacted Abraham. And one of the ways that I am able to understand these things better is to try to just slow things down in Scripture and try to picture what it would have looked like if it had happened today. And I need to tell you right now that the way I'm going to tell this to you is not literally true. But I don't believe I'm doing any violence to the intent of the scripture. So I believe it is figuratively true. But if you hear something here that sounds a little bit off, please hold off before you write your letter to the district superintendent. 
I am not out of my mind, I assure you. But what did it mean for Abraham to believe? What did that faith look like? Well, as I said, he was 75. He had lived his entire life there. Everything about him, everything about his life, everything about his future was wrapped up in where he was and what he did. And God said, I want you to leave all that behind and go. And so he did. Now, what happens when you're about to move? You've got to get everything packed up. And you need to do certain things. And so where do you go if you need moving supplies when you live in Ur of Chaldees? I imagine you go to Urmart. And so Abraham went to Urmart, and he talked to the proprietor there. Now, they'd known each other all their lives. And the proprietor said, well, Abe, I understand you're going to be leaving us. He said, that's right. In fact, I just, uh, we're about ready to go. I came here to get a few more things. I need some boxes. I need some packing tape. And, oh, that baby carriage over there. I need that also. And the store manager said, the baby carriage? Is, is one of your servant girls going to have a baby there, Abe? He said, oh, no. It's not for one of my servant girls. It's for Sarah and me. We're going to have a baby. And the proprietor said, well, that's wonderful. Good for you. There, there's a lot of people, a lot of orphans out there that need to be adopted. Good for you. You know, there's going to be enough changes in your life going on right now. Don't you think you want to hold off on your move until after you've adjusted to this adoption? And Abe says, no, you don't understand. We're not adopting. Sarah and me, we're going to have a baby. And the proprietor said, wow, that, that's extraordinary. Congratulations. So happy for you. You know, Abe, you might want to hold off a bit before moving. Because here we have some of the finest obstetricians, hospitals right here in Ur. No telling what kind of problems you'll run into out there, no matter where you're going to go. And with Sarah at her age, why don't you wait until the, the baby's a little bit older? And Abraham said, no, we can't do that. God told me to go now, and besides, we can't wait because Sarah is not even pregnant yet. And the proprietor said, I'm sorry, I'm not sure I understood. We're talking about Sarah. Your wife, Sarah. Sarah, your wife. Let me get this straight, Abe. I was at the post office last week, and I think I remember Miss Sarah saying that she just got her first Social Security check. She's not exactly a spring chicken, is she? And Abe said, well, no, she's 65. He said, now, you've been trying for quite some time now to have a child, haven't you? Abe said, yeah. yeah. Well, what makes you think that now, after all this time, that Sarah's going to be able to have a baby? And Abraham said, well, God told me. And the proprietor said, oh, gotcha, uh-huh. Yeah, well, Abe, you know, not only do we have really good obstetricians here, but we have some really good psychiatrists. In fact, you need to see my cousin. Uh, he's, he has a, uh, a counseling center over here. You need to go see him. And Abe said, you know, I don't have time for this. Do you want to sell me that baby carriage or not? And the proprietor, being a good capitalist, Wanted to make some money, he sold him the baby carriage. So Abraham loaded the packing boxes, the packing tape in the baby carriage, pushed it out, and walked down the street. And I think everybody who was on the main street of Ur that day got a crick in his or her neck, looking like that at the sight of this old man with a long white beard pushing a baby carriage down the middle of the street. That's what faith looked like for Abraham. A faith to believe God, a faith to dare to believe God, 
a faith to believe God even in the face of everything that said otherwise. And so he pushed that baby carriage home. They got everything packed up and off they went. They left behind everything they'd ever known. They traveled for some time, they came to a strange land, and it was time to set up their first home. I think that as they were unpacking everything, Sarah got to that baby carriage and said, well, we'll probably put this in the attic, won't we? And I imagine Abraham said, no, I don't think we'll do that. If we put it in the attic, we'll never see it, and we'll forget about it. No, I think, I think the place we need to put it is right here in the living room, right there. So we'll see it every single day, and we will remember God's promise of what he is going to do through you and me. And so that's where they put it. I can only imagine how many people visited the home of Abraham and Sarah over the next few years. And after the first cup of coffee, inevitably, the conversation would turn to that baby carriage. What's that baby carriage there for? And Abraham would say, we're going to use it. You see that old woman over there in that rocking chair? She's going to have a baby. I wonder how many people walked out of their home doing the universal symbol of thinking he's nuts. He's off his rocker. How can he possibly believe in that? Yet every day that baby carriage was there as a symbol, as a reminder that God said, your best days are yet to come. I'm going to do something through you and through your descendants that you can't even begin to imagine. Well, years went by. Ten years went by. Still, there's no baby. At this point, a little bit of doubt started to creep into their minds. And they started to think, well, maybe we didn't quite understand it. Maybe God needs some help here. God doesn't seem to be moving at quite the speed we think he should. Somebody ought to do something. And can I just say to you right now that whenever you hear anybody say, God needs help, or somebody better do something, watch out. And so they decided that, that the timing was right, and instead of Isaac's son being born through Sarah, it was to be born through Sarah's handmaiden, Hagar. And so Hagar gives birth to a child, Ishmael. Abraham's eyes lit up. At last, he has the son that he had dreamt of. He gets him. He's so happy. He runs over to the baby carriage. And before he can set the baby in, God says, wait a minute. No, stop. He said, I see Ishmael, and I've got great plans for him. I will make a great nation out of him. There will be many kings and princes who will come through him, but that baby carriage is not for him. I told you that I was going to give you a son. That son's going to be through Sarah. The baby carriage is for him. It's interesting that all of the promises that God gave to Abraham were fulfilled through Ishmael except for one. You see, they, through Ishmael, he did become a great nation, a great number of people. But God said to Abraham, through your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And the blessing was not to come through Ishmael. The blessing, which would become our Messiah, was going to be through Isaac. You see, you can try to force God's hand. You can try to move his timing around. You can try to manipulate things. And there may be some good things that come out of it. But the blessings, the blessings of God, those come by waiting for him, for his timing and his plans, by having faith in him. And so they wait and wait and wait. 
15 more years go by. It has now been 25 years since God made his promise to Abraham. That baby carriage that was once state-of-the-art is now an antique, but it's never been used. And finally, when Abraham is 100 years old and Sarah is 90, God gives them Isaac. Can you even begin to imagine what Isaac meant for Abraham? Any dad is going to go mushy when he has his first son. But Isaac was more to him than just a son. Isaac was the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Isaac was the proof that God had not forgotten him, that God's plans for him were real. Isaac was the apple of Abraham's eyes. I can just picture what it was like when Abraham put Isaac in that baby carriage for the first time and pushed him down the street. And this time it wasn't the people all around him who were laughing. This time it was Abraham laughing because God had fulfilled the promise, the promise that he had given 25 years ago. You know, I kind of like the fact now that it took 25 years for that promise to be fulfilled. I don't know about you, I have only been a Christian for 30 years. And my concept of being patient about God's promises is generally if I'm willing to wait more than a couple of weeks. Oh yes, I can pray about it for a couple weeks. A couple weeks because I'm a good man of faith. I have lots of patience. I believe. But after a couple of weeks, I start to get impatient and I wonder. But God made them wait for 25 years. Not only to show that his timing was perfect, but also that when the time came for that promise to be fulfilled, it was going to be in such a way that Abraham and Sarah knew beyond a shadow of a doubt they didn't have anything to do with it. It was God. God and God alone who was able to fulfill the terms of that promise. And so Isaac meant everything to Abraham. And that's why when that day came, a few years later, where God said to him, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, your Isaac, and offer him to me as a sacrifice. The word of God tells us that early the next morning, Abraham got up to obey. This is another situation where I think we can look at it now, 4,000 years later, and say, well, that was a pretty easy decision for him because, look, there's only one verse between the command and the obedience. I don't think for one moment that was an easy night for him. Can you imagine what that was like for Abraham? That night, that night, I don't think he got a wink of sleep. I think he was tossing and turning. I think there were doubts that were beginning to form in his mind. Because to offer up Isaac, it was, it was more than offering up his son. It was basically saying all of God's promises, all of his plans, everything that Abraham had staked his life on were now going to be taken. I think it was a sleepless night, a long night. I think he got up at some point, went out in the living room, and paced and fretted. But at some point, his eyes fell upon an antique that he just couldn't quite put away. It hadn't been used in quite a while, but there it was, a baby carriage. And he remembered that this God who had made a promise to him had fulfilled that promise in an extraordinary way that God had never let him down, that God had never lied to him, had never failed him. And so I don't think it became 
super easy for him to obey, but I believe at that moment there was a certain peace, a certain confidence, a certain hope and expectation that this God who had delivered before will deliver again. And so early the next morning, he and Isaac, they went off. They got to the place where the Lord commanded. Abraham put Isaac there on the altar. He took a knife. And he lifted up the knife, but before he could bring it down, God sent an angel who intervened and said, wait, don't touch the boy. In Hebrew, it, it literally says, don't harm the lad. It's very, very tender the way it comes across. It says that, that God did that as a test for Abraham. Now, for the longest time, I read that and I thought, when God tested Abraham, what that meant was that God was sitting around in heaven one day and said, you know, I'm curious how Abraham will respond, whether he has enough love, whether he trusts me enough. I haven't the foggiest notion. I think I'll have to test him so that I can be convinced. Well, that's ridiculous, if you think about it, because what do we know about God? God is omniscient. He knows everything. God exists simultaneously in every point and time and place. He knew what Abraham's actions were going to be. So who was the test? For whose benefit was that test? It was Abraham. You see, in the years to come, not only would there be a baby carriage there that would be a reminder to him of God's ability to provide, but he had his beloved Isaac, who was himself a reminder that God never asked us to give up anything unless he gives back to us something even greater. So Abraham did not have to give up Isaac. What God wanted Abraham to know is that your faith is real. And there would be times that would come for the rest of Abraham's life where his faith would be challenged. And I suspect in each of those times, Isaac just happened to walk by. And it brought a smile to the old man's face. And he remembered God's faithfulness and he remembered his own faithfulness to God. I wonder this morning, do you have a baby carriage? A baby carriage in your living room? Do you have something that is a symbol for you of what God has promised to do in you and through you? When you talk about your faith, is that a faith that has transformed into something that changes your behavior where you will dare step out in faith, where you will risk being made ridiculous if God doesn't come through and deliver on his promises? What is the symbol of God's promises in your life? You know, I believe that preachers really ought to stay away from talking about themselves very much. In fact, I, I try to coach uh, younger preachers that the majority of sermon preparation is getting themselves out of the sermon. However, I believe that God uh, has instructed me to tell you a little bit about myself this morning. You see, as many of you would know, I, was not, uh, I did not want to be a preacher all of my life. That was not my childhood ambition. From the time I was eight years old, there was only one thing I ever wanted to be. That was a lawyer. Not just any kind of lawyer, I wanted to be a prosecutor. From the very earliest of ages, I had this passion for justice, to, to see the good guys win, to combat evil. And that was the single focus of my life 
from the time I was eight until the time I was 25 when I finally achieved that dream. And I became assistant state's attorney in Woodford County, Illinois. It was more than I ever thought it would be. Incredibly fulfilling. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And then there was this day, March the 21st, 1999. It was a Sunday night. I'm seated in the sanctuary at Eureka Church of the Nazarene next to my fiance, whom, uh, and we are scheduled to be married in three months. And in the middle of that service, God said, if you truly want to be fulfilled in anything you ever do, you're going to come work for me. It was such a transforming moment, and I was stunned. God had just put his finger on something that, that was my identification. It was my fulfillment. It, 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 was, it was everything about me was that I was, I was a prosecutor. And God just said, you're going to come work for me. I don't remember much about the rest of that service other than I was just trying to figure out whether I was losing my mind. When the preacher said the last amen, instead of getting up and visiting with people, Jody and I just sat there. And finally, I looked over at her. She wasn't saying anything, and I said, what are you thinking? And she said, you go first. I said, well, I think God has just called me into the ministry. And she said, I know. Because while he was calling you, he was talking to me. We're going to do this. It had to be God. Only God could have changed my plans in that way. But, you know, I, I'm pretty methodical in the way that I do things. And so when I realized that this was truly coming from God, and my pastor said, if God's calling you to ministry, that means you need to go to seminary. And if you go to seminary, that means you need to move to Kansas City. So I came up with a plan, an audacious plan, that in five years we would be able to go. I needed five years, you see, because I had more student loan debt than the national debt of some third world countries. And with no expectation of going in the ministry, and frankly with horrible financial habits, uh, I had made no dent in that. So five years was what it was going to take to deal with this. But God said, no, I don't think so. Five years, you do this in five years, you're always going to think that it's you who pulled this off. You're going right away. We prayed about it. We had confirmation from godly counselors, and so we announced our intent. I announced when I would be resigning from my position as prosecutor. I also, by this point, had my own law practice. And so I, I told my clients that I was going to be leaving, um, helped them get transferred over to another attorney, and then worked out, started negotiations for the sale of my practice. Let me cut to the end of that part. The sale of that practice was going to be my financial security. And I never got one cent for it. So if you learn anything from this, you should never trust a lawyer. <clears throat> but we had that uh, all worked out. And so the transition was going to be December 31st would be my last day as a prosecutor. It would be the formal transition of my law practice. And we would move to Kansas City. On October the 16th, 2000, I started the last murder trial of my career. That day we started, uh, we did jury selection. 
I spent the entire day doing that. I then went to my office, went through all the files one more time, preparing for calling witnesses the next day to start the trial. I came home, I was exhausted. I scarfed down a few bites of food. I laid down, I was immediately asleep. And 45 minutes later, Jody woke me up to say, I'm in labor. I forgot to tell you, we also realized during that time that we have a child on the way. He wasn't due for another couple weeks, but he decided to come early. So that night, we quickly drove to Peoria. And Michael was born early the next morning. I was kind of patting myself on the back thinking, the son who is named after me also knows enough not to interfere with a, with a murder trial. I'll be able to get a couple hours sleep. I'll be able to go back. We'll continue the trial. Jody and I were so happy. We were excited. And we said to the nurse, when are they going to bring Michael back so that we can hold him? And the nurse said, you mean nobody told you? To this day, it is some of the hardest words I've ever heard. You see, when they took him back to get him cleaned up and ready, he crashed. They revived him, and he crashed again. And it started this process here. They, they did not know what was wrong. He would just stop breathing. And it took extraordinary steps in order to get him breathing again. Our world was turning upside down. They put him in neonatal ICU. As it would turn out, Jody came down with pink eye that night. So she couldn't even go in there in order to hold her newborn son. They had him hooked up to all these monitors and wires and tubes and everything. I spent my time going back and forth between being with him and trying to comfort her. The judge graciously gave me a one-day continuance in my trial. And then the next day, I'm back in court. Every time there was a pause in this trial, I went back to my office to call and get an update, and I was told, well, he, he crashed this many times since the last time you called. Went back into court. The sheriff had assigned a deputy whose sole job was to be there to put me in the squad car and run me at full speed over to Peoria to the hospital if it looked like we were going to lose him. I completed that trial on Friday. For the first and only time in my career, I didn't stick around for the verdict. I had another prosecutor cover that. I won that, by the way, in case you're wondering. But then I was back at the hospital. They transferred him at this point to a children's hospital specialty place. He was finally, after a couple of weeks, released. They said, we know what the problem is. We can do surgery, but there's a really good chance that he will outgrow this when he's about a year and a half old. So they sent him home with this monitor, and the thing would go off multiple times an hour when he would stop breathing. We would have to stop everything in order to go and get him breathing again. I gotta tell you, my faith was challenged during this time. You see, I had just announced, I had already announced my resignation. I had just tried my last murder trial. I was just a couple months away from, from no longer being a prosecutor, from no longer having health insurance. I knew I was coming to Kansas City. I had no place to live. I had no job here. My law practice, even if I changed my mind at this point, so many of the clients had already found other attorneys, so the practice would not have been enough to be able to sustain me. And I found myself saying to God, did I miss it? 
what happened here? I'm trying to trust you, but I honestly don't see a way forward here. God, what are you doing? So Michael was born on October 17th. On November 15th, we went to Pekin First Church of the Nazarene for a, we called it a taste of camp meeting service. It was a revival. Our district superintendent Crawford Howe was preaching that night. At the end of the service, he said, you know, I wasn't planning on this, but I believe that tonight God wants to do something in the lives of many people here. I wonder if there's anyone here tonight who has a physical need, who would like to be prayed over and anointed, to ask God to do something about it. So we took our 28-day-old Michael up to the altar. We put him on the altar, and we prayed, and Crawford Howe came, and he touched him, and I'll never forget. He said, Dear Jesus, you created this boy. Would you recreate him? Would you touch him, rewrite every single cell of his body, transform him, and heal him to your glory? And after he prayed, he looked up at Jody and me, and he said, There will be a test. Something's going to happen here where, where Satan is going to try to tell you that nothing happened here tonight. Don't believe him. Trust in God. So we got up. We left. As soon as we pulled out of the parking lot, Michael's alarms went off. And we had to stop and we had to revive him. And as soon as he started breathing again, I looked up and Jody looked at me and said, we're not going to believe the devil. We're going to believe God that he is doing something here. November 15th, 2000, was the last time we heard that alarm. Every week, we would have to hook that machine up to the phone, and the data would be downloaded to the hospital. And the next time we did this, the hospital called back and said, we're going to have to replace the machine. It's defective. And Jody said, what's wrong? And they said, well, it stopped registering the alarms. And she said, let me guess. The last one was November 15th. And they said, that's right. She said, you can replace the machine if you want. It's still not going to register any alarms. God has healed our son. And they said, really? Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we'll still be out there with the new machine. New machine never went off either. And last week, if you were here, you saw my son, Michael, now 19 years old. He and I are very close. I'm close to all my boys. But you know what that relationship with Michael is? You see... Over the past 19 years, there's been many times where my faith has been challenged, where I've kind of wondered, God, did you really mean to call me? Do you really have plans for me? Do you really have plans for my family? And it always seems that whenever my faith starts to get challenged, that I'll see my boy. And when I see him, it is God saying to me, don't you dare doubt me. Don't you ever think that there's anything beyond my ability to deliver, and don't you ever doubt my promises or my purposes for you. Can I just tell you now that there will never be anything God asks you to give up, where he doesn't come back and give you something way more, way better than what you ever imagined. If you dared confide with me this morning your deepest hopes and dreams your, your greatest expectations, what it is you really want to be when you grow up, let me tell you, your best dreams are nothing compared to what God wants to do through you right now. God didn't ask me 
He wasn't interested in me giving up being a lawyer. But he needed me to know that there was nothing that I wouldn't give up. And now, uh, there are days when I, I wish that I was back in the prosecutor's office. But instead now of being the prosecutor of a county of 33,000 people, instead of having a private practice with about 750 clients within one county, God has me representing two and a half million Nazarenes in 162 world areas. And instead of punishing evil, he gives me the blessed opportunity to be able to proclaim that evil can be transformed, that good, his good, prevails in every human heart. And so I wonder this morning, is there anything that God has been talking to you about? Any promises that he's been whispering to you? Anything where you feel like he would like you to step out in faith, but you've kind of been wondering whether he really has your best interest, whether he can deliver? This morning may be the day that you would walk out of here pushing your own baby carriage. That you would be walking out of here with a faith that dares believe. A faith that says, I'm not holding anything back. A faith that says, no matter how long I have to wait, no matter what it looks like, his ways are good. He has never failed me. I don't believe he ever will. And wherever it is that he leads you, that's where you will go. With all heads bowed, no one looking around, I wonder if there's just anyone this morning where God's saying to you, today is your day to step out in faith. Today's the day where I need you to be audacious and to really believe what it is that I plan to do through you. If God's speaking to you, would you slip your hand up right now so that I can see you and pray for you? What are God's plans for you? Our fathers, we come to the concluding moments of this service. We thank you for your word, and we thank you that you are always faithful. I pray for everyone who is here this morning, that you would remind each one of us of how much you love us and how you have our future just as much in sight as you do our past. So Lord, would you bless us? Would you inspire us and embolden us to reach out in faith, to trust you, and to believe in you. And we give you all the thanks and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.